This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. I'm your host, Matthew O'Connell, and in each episode, I explore a topical issue concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality, or whatever you want to call it, with the help of philosophers, religious scholars, and intellectuals from a wide variety of fields, as well as practitioners and teachers, always with the intent to explore new terrain of thought and practice. That's right, we're looking for some kind of revolution here. You can download or play episodes for free at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher, and keep up to date with news through Twitter and Facebook. Throw comments at us, criticism, critique, and suggestions for guests and topics to cover. You can also find writings, show notes, and much more at posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me. If you're looking for support or help exploring practice beyond tradition in a coaching dynamic, or if you're stuck in your practice or have become disillusioned with Buddhism or some other path or practice, or if you're a secular atheist looking for some kind of way forward without religion and ridiculous beliefs, then you might want to get in touch. If any of the issues that come up in our episodes are touching, striking, or important to you, that's also the material I just love to explore. So visit oconocoaching.com for more information. Most of our episodes are sponsored by bands, groups from Bristol, my original hometown in England, or Trieste, Italy, where I currently reside. If you like what you hear, then why not support the artist, most of whom can be discovered at Bandcamp. That's all. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to an exciting new season of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Yes, I know, we have already started, but, well, it kind of feels exciting this time round. It feels like this year there's a bit of electricity in the air and something important might be taking place. Now, whether this is true or not, it's anybody's guess, and I guess we'll all discover in due time. Now, this introduction serves two conversations recorded with the enigmatic, wonderful, curious, sexy Daniel Ingram. No, I don't get to call guests that very often, do I? But in this case, why not? Daniel is a guest who came on the podcast a couple of years back already. And the conversation that we had, or the conversations rather, we had this time round are quite different from that one. You're going to hear this same introduction for both episodes. So if you've heard this already, feel free to skip forward. If not, you might like to listen in for a bit more information. Firstly, who is Daniel? Well... I imagine most of you know who he is already, but just in case you don't, I will give you a brief bio. Daniel is a recently retired emergency medicine physician from the States. He became well known in the contemporary Western Buddhist world for a number of reasons. Firstly, for his early involvement with the Buddhist Geeks podcast and friendships with Vince Horn and Kenneth Folk for his central role in the Dharma Overground website, which is worth taking a look at, whether you're a practitioner or an academic, 
maybe even an anthropologist looking to study unusual phenomena, well, there's plenty of that going on there. At its best, the Overground website is a community-based support and feedback site for those intensely engaging with meditation practices, with the idea to kind of wake up or achieve the end results of a path. And for many folks, that involves the kind of meditation that Daniel has done a lot of. Then there's his book, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. This is quite an unusual book. It's an important book, and it's sent to ripple through the Western Dharma scene, both for its very American, pragmatic approach to Mahasi Sayadaw-style practice, but also because Daniel openly claimed to be an arhat at the time. It's even on the bloody cover. Now, that was something of a major taboo back then, though I wonder if it's so controversial anymore. Well, I guess it depends on your definition of the thing and the stock you put into that and how willing you are to talk about it outside of a given practice group. There's politics involved there, folks, however you come at it. Now, we do talk about this briefly in the first conversation for those who are curious, but in a way that you might not have heard before. Listen out for that as you go on. Discussing enlightenment critically is actually on the bucket list for this season. We did it with Dell Wright briefly, but it's a conversation topic that has a lot more in it. I think it's one to go at at some point. Now, as with my conversations with Ken McLeod and Hokai Sabul, Daniel Ingram ended up being a conversational act in person. We spoke twice over the course of two days, and it was in my house here in Italy. This means that the conversations we have were of a different flavour to those I normally have over Skype, as you may have noticed last time round. Although this time, we had far more structure. We had a, a bit of a chance to communicate beforehand and decide on the kinds of things we wanted to talk about. And Daniel was game. He was great. He did his homework and he actually read up on quite a bit of the material that I suggested we tackle. I think this makes for two very interesting conversations, although they're quite different. In fact, committed practitioners of Buddhism and those familiar with Daniel's work will probably find the first conversation more stimulating. Certainly those with a more critical view will find things of value in the first conversation, but the second one might be slightly more intellectually stimulating. Of course, I recommend both. The reason for that is because it takes time to get into a, a flow in the conversation, build trust to kind of get a sense of what the other person is really like. If you do decide to listen to either conversation on its own, they are standalone conversations and you'll be fine either way. The first conversation is based around a set of questions I posed to Daniel and some of them were sort of crowdsourced and others kind of arrived left field. We've managed to cover quite a lot of terrain and some of it's rather geeky. It's almost two hours long, so there's quite a lot there, but you can kind of divide the whole thing into two parts. The first 50 minutes covers topics such as Dan's current practice, struggle and challenge in practice, retreats, teaching, mentoring, the four imponderables, magic, exploring unusual terrain, the oddities of high-level concentration, zombie brain or high-end mental athlete, which one are you, what it's like being an arhat today, and criticism of awakening. Jesus, there's a lot there, isn't there? But it kind of flows in and out, and they're all kind of interconnected, to use a nice Buddhist trope. And there's a theme that we keep returning to, or I keep returning to, which is just this recognition that a lot of the motivation for engaging with practice in the first place is one person has a bloody passion for it. And if you don't, well, this kind of stuff might not be interesting to you. Now, the second half, so we're talking about 50 minutes plus in, takes a slightly different turn. And this is a nice preparation for the second conversation. We start to talk a bit more about philosophy, 
David Hume, epistemology, the challenges of contemporary philosophical thought, relational approaches versus pragmatism, generation X, death, and you know the difference really between real-world practice and the ideals of practice, whether those ideals are wholly negative or wholly positive. The second conversation was recorded rather last minute before Daniel and his wife left Trieste for Florence. So we just had an hour, and more or less that's the length of that conversation. We talk specifically about one thing, which is a series of posts up at the speculative non-Buddhism website, entitled Trash Theory. They focus on a variety of things, but they have something in common with this year's Imperfect Buddha podcast series, which is practice. Those pieces are divided up between postulates for practice, practice materials, and then a reflection usually written by Glenn Wallace. We talked not just about trash theory, but a little bit about the role of the website, the intellectual life more generally, ex-Buddhism, and much more. We did what we could with the time we had available, and I thought it was both entertaining and interesting. Daniel's willingness to engage with the ideas will come across as you listen, and he really was a good sport. In fact, so much so that we decided we would record a follow-up in which we would finish talking about the ideas of practice and the postulates in a later conversation, which has already been programmed for later this month. So you have that to look forward to if you enjoy either of the first two conversations. And if we get some nice criticism or critique in the meantime, especially from the second of these conversations, we'll try and address that too. Finally, what comes next? After the third in the series of conversations with Daniel, which may even include another conversation on Ken Wilber at some point. Yes, that needs doing, so why not with him? I will be producing a second critical turn, and it may even be specifically a political turn. Oh my God, yes, I'm going to do it. I guess I should take out some life insurance beforehand, prepare myself for attacks, both from the left and the right and that sort of thing. No, we're all very nice people here on the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Our listeners are so well-educated, I'm sure they'll say something reasonably logical, well-reasoned and thought out. And good, I'm up for that kind of thing. The purpose is to respond to a multitude of interactions I've had, well, I like to say over the last year and a half, but it's kind of been longer. The topic will no doubt annoy some, delight others, worry many, be uninteresting to some, I will do my best to avoid the easy multiple landmines and pitfalls which kind of characterise the current political discourse and landscape in the public sphere. We'll see how I do. That conversation will be divided up into three parts so you can kind of decide whether you're up for it or not and the first part will be me laying out a strong warning lots of caveats and kind of the big picture view of where I want to go after that you can join or just ignore the whole bloody thing and wait for the next interview with a reasonable guest I will also be interviewing Cleo Kearns on ritual, ceremony and more later this month. You've got that to look forward to and that should be an interesting balance to the conversations with Daniel. Our last conversation with Cleo didn't make it out into the world but I can tell you that she and I quickly found ourselves in very, very interesting terrain and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. The terrain I'm looking to explore with her will be stimulating especially for those listeners who enjoy less rational, pragmatic forms of practice. Buddhism in the key of Vajrayana ceremony, ritual, dance, that kind of thing. But I also believe it will be terrain worth listening to for those more interested in mindfulness, the secular, the rational, the individualistic. You guys have a lot to learn from the world of ceremony and ritual. Don't you know we live in a highly ritualized ceremonial world already? Anyway, that's all for now. Enjoy. 
Okay, so here we are on the Imperfect Buddha podcast with our second on-site recording with an unexpected guest. This time it's a returnee to the podcast. It's Mr. Daniel Ingram. Hi, Daniel. Hello. Wonderful to be here in this beautiful city. Yeah, we are in Trieste and this is your first time here, right? Yes, it's amazing. Now, we've, um, we've had a chance to think about some of the themes we might talk about. And in the meantime, I've been reading things, as have you. And you were so kind that you did a bit of homework for today's episodes, right? Yes. Getting in touch again with some of that crazy stuff from uh, the Glenn Wallace and uh, speculative non-Buddhism. But that's not necessarily going to be everything we talk about. Hopefully not. And in fact, this conversation will be divided into two parts. And I'll be curious to see where listeners find themselves most drawn to in terms of what it is that stimulates interest. Well, I've got a set of questions I'm going to surprise you with, and we'll see where our conversation ends up. And then we're going to dedicate some time to talking about hopefully two things, although we'll see how it goes. Uh, We're going to talk about trash theory, and we may even talk about Ken Wilber a little bit. Yeah. Although you have said that could be quite time consuming. It could be. So we'll see. We'll see. This is going to be an explorative conversation, which again is part of the theme really of this new cycle of the podcast, which means there's a certain amount of um, the unknown ahead of us. But we do have a direction to follow. And I think it's going to be an interesting one. So let's jump into some some questions. Uh, For some of these questions, I'm going to be giving a bit more context than I normally would. I had some feedback from the last few episodes that suggested this would be a good idea. And it's always good for me to remember, but I'll share this with you. We get quite different types of listeners. So we've got, you know, intellectuals and academics who maybe have no practice background. And then we've got practitioners who are smart and are curious and will be less familiar, perhaps, with some of the more theoretical things. So we just have to bear in mind we're speaking to those two groups. And we'll do our best, right? Yep. Let's start off by defining practice a little bit. So um, for listeners tuning in, perhaps for the first time in a while, and have seen that I've put up this sort of advertising saying this is a practice season. The context is this. We're going to be talking about practice in a number of ways, but one of the ways I think that's probably quite clear for us, and you'll see what you think about this, Daniel, is that there's a general distinction made amongst a lot of Buddhist practitioners between the idea of formalized practice, which is sometimes referred to as on-cushion, and then less formal practice, which is off-cushion. And for many Western uh, Buddhist practitioners, formal practice means meditation of some sort. Although it's good to remember, there are lots of other people doing all kinds of other things, right? From ritual, from breathing, from physical movement. In the Aratera tradition, for example, they do art, right? Painting, calligraphy as a form of practice too. Or service or prayer. What sort of practice are you currently engaged in in your life? And perhaps you could follow that line of formal or formalized or structured practice? And what kind of practice are you involved in off-cushion? And what is currently challenging for you in any of these practices, if at all? And another question I'm going to throw in there, so as a three-parter, I'm loading you up already. Where's the struggle for you in any of this? Nice. So tremendous amount of what I do is service. So in terms of sheer hours, helping to run an online forum, the Dharma Overground, I do some writing, I respond to emails, I respond to requests for Skype calls or interviews. Sometimes um, when I have the time, I'm doing some research related to meditation, which I'll be doing more of this summer. Um, I'll be getting to spend some fine time in your home country, Cambridge, doing some research there if all goes well, Uh, helping to operationalize some of what we would call the stages of insight 
in particular a stage we would call the arising and passing away in clinical research and trying to develop some diagnostic survey tools to help uh, tease out people who may have had this kind of an experience, what we would classify as an arising and passing away event or experience. So a lot of what I do in terms of helping in some sort of Dharma context or something is actually helping others. So I've um, had a phase of practice that was a lot about my own development and learning techniques and tricks and reading and stuff. And I still practice and do those things. But um, now I'm trying to pass on the kindness that was passed on to me and help other people to learn some of these same things and to grow how they wish to grow. And so see where some of my skill sets and offerings can help people who are interested in those things. And so that's a lot in terms of just sheer time. That's by mm. far the bulk of the time. I still sit every night before I go to bed. Um, I still do some just sitting. I do some jhana practice. I do uh, practices that might be considered more sort of um, magical sometimes, uh, occasionally more sort of ritualistic I do some yoga sometimes in terms of a physical sort of body-centered awareness practice, and just because it helps me. I'm getting older and it helps this body be a little bit better as that process happens. I'm now 50. And so um, those are some of the things I'm doing. And I also am still doing retreats. So I did nine weeks of retreat last year, so far two weeks this year, and hope to do more uh, these are generally just retreats with a few friends. We'll get together or something like that and uh, decide to go retreat. And then we'll do something I've been focusing mostly on the fire casino, which is uh, basically, or a light casino, which is basically looking at a candle flame or a light bulb, closing your eyes, following however the images that you see occur until you don't have anything you feel is organized. And then opening your eyes, looking at the light source again for a minute or so, closing your eyes and doing that again. And if you do that in high enough dose, then you start to get all these interesting visual effects. And I think it's a great way to learn about the visual system in meditation and to learn to visualize. Uh, people can also get into some powerful concentration states or jhanas or mm. shamatha or samadhi training. Um, but also people tend to also move through the stages of insight and then you can get interesting magical effects from it. So it's kind of one of these interesting practices that kind of seems to hit on a lot of fronts. You also, it often brings up some very complex sort of psychological stuff in a very Jungian or archetypal sense. Um, a lot of symbols, a lot of entities, sometimes for some people, animals, various visions, you can see weird stuff. And that often has some sort of um, deeper psychological archetypal resonance. And so that's a fascinating practice that I'm having a lot of fun with. There's a website called www.firecasina.org, so firecasina.org. That where you can find a whole lot of free materials and people's reports and stuff. I mean, when you're doing that kind of thing, that sounds quite quite unusual and quite abstract. What's motivating you to do it in the first place? Um, so every time I practice, I get something out of it I wasn't expecting. Every time I go and do one of these retreats mm. and I get things I didn't know to ask for. I wasn't aware it even existed. I often haven't seen described in any sort of ordinary way anywhere, or at least not in the specific way they may have shown up for me. So while a lot of my early to middle period of practice was very much looking through the texts and 
seeing various states and stages that one could attain, very much trying to, okay, there's this genre, there's this formless realm, there's this stage of insight, there's whatever, and trying to do that. So it was very, very named and specific attainments. These days, I have this wonderful um, opportunity to just go on retreats and see what happens and allow sort of some element of grace or karma or how, you know, pick your favorite word for the mysterious process by which things show up in our practice. And um, I continue to be rewarded uh, with cool and interesting experiences, changes, things that I find helpful, beneficial mm -hmm. for myself, for other people. And um, I like sharing the journey. So I really like um, going on retreats with other people, just a small group of friends, you know, people who like each other and are comfortable going deep with each other in a, a meditative context and building a container for ourselves somewhere, renting a space or wherever we, we do this thing and um, practicing together and sharing the journey. And that is also incredibly rewarding. Uh, when we do these retreats recently, most of the retreats have been like, you know, probably eight, nine, 10 hours a day, 12 hours, maybe sometimes, but a little more conversation, a little more time for people to actually share. But that's still a pretty high dose and you still get some pretty powerful effects. But you also sort of get to know people. You get to help keep everybody on the rails because these practices can get weird when you start seeing stuff, hearing stuff, doing, adding mantras in, getting, you know, some unusual experiences, it can get pretty strange. So it's good to help keep everybody in some reasonable, uh, safe parameters within the realm of weird. You know, there's there's a good crazy and not so good crazy, right? And so we try to keep it in the realm of good crazy. And um, so this is what I'm enjoying these days. And that's um, my idea of a good time. So that was the first question. The second two you could probably pop together, they were, you know, what are the challenges that you're currently facing in practice, whether it's the practice of service, which you mentioned, or it's engaging in these retreats or a daily sitting discipline. And the, the third bit was about where's the struggle for you, if there is one? Yeah. So uh, struggle is figuring out what what's the best use of my time. I'm mm. blessed at the moment and that I am relatively free to choose to do with my time what I wish. And then you have the sort of tyranny of an extraordinarily large number of options. Um, I remember some people uh, were talking about when uh, Glasnost came in and the USSR sort of collapsed and they had had their lives very structured for them and they had like one flavor of ice cream and one this and one job and one option. And all of a sudden they had this massive amount of choice of what they could buy, where they could go, what they could do, um, media they could listen to, and they sort of found it challenging. In the same way, it sounds like a strange thing to complain about, but when you have these wide open options, and I'm a person whose um, somewhat hypomanic brain is constantly dreaming up new projects and fun things to write or to do or to collaborate on or retreat it would be fun to do or a you know, something it would be fun to research or something would be fun to write about or talk somebody to talk with or somewhere to go or whatever. And I currently probably have a hundred years of that already that it would be fun. And um, there's no way I can possibly get to any of those things. So it's a mm. odd thing to complain about, but actually trying to figure out the best use of my time, mm. uh, what's skillful and what's sort of optimal without sort of the ideal of optimal can get very oppressive if one isn't careful with that. And so um, just making sure I just do something pretty good that's cool and maybe some other things don't happen like I wish them to and, and dealing with that. Um, also where to live. 
So I'm pretty frustrated with the politics, healthcare, a lot of things in the United States at the moment, and I can, I'm currently free to live anywhere. So it's one of my interesting projects. Where would be a place to live that provides a good quality of life for uh, myself and my wife, and um, where we will be happy and can pursue fun, creative projects that are stimulating. That's another interesting sort of a thing. And how you know, trying to figure out how. Uh, that will allow me to help people because anywhere I go, it's, you know, that area or wherever will get more emphasis, obviously. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting challenge. Uh, sitting wise and sort of formal practice wise, life's pretty good. You know, I, I was lucky enough to train well. And so when I sit, things feel pretty cool most of the time and nice stuff happens. And and it's um, it's pretty fun. It is true that when I go on these uh, fire casino retreats, like just about everybody who goes on them, there's usually a first two-day period where there are some pretty cool effects, some neat visions and images and stuff. And then we end up in a period we call the Merc, which for most people is 30 to 50 to 70 to 100 or so hours of um, challenge where it's not as interesting. It's kind of maybe more dull or sort of not the images not quite as good or not beating at one's expectations. And then once I get out past that, there's the good stuff. And so like everybody, I have to sort of put in my time to build up. When I think of very strong concentration, my entrance price is still 100 to 150 hours before I get to the stuff that I really like. And some of that can be kind of dull or, or just not very interesting from a certain point of view. And so there's still that. And so those are some of the interesting things that are going on. So have you ever tried a retreat in which you've had to do absolutely nothing? Um, so the, it's it's an interesting thing, sort of the just sitting approach to practice. Yes. So actually, I've done some of that. In particular, actually, after a, a bunch of structured practice last year, I went to a friend's house um, outside of Bangkok mm. and was on retreat there, sort of medium weight retreat as intensity of practice goes. And a lot of those sits were just sits. Some of them were more structured fire casino. Usually it'll start off in the morning, kind of building up the power a little bit with fire casino. And then I would just sit and seeing what happens. But I've done a very reasonable amount of uh, um, just sitting practice. Also, I had a retreat where I did a reasonable amount of that as well. Uh, a few years ago, I went to the beach by myself for 17 days. And while I did some more structured stuff too, um, sometimes I just, what my body says, uh, you just need to sit, to sit and feel and be and let it happen as it wants to happen. Um, so yeah, done some of that. Uh, and sometimes that's very interesting and valuable. And, um, and yet sometimes I think the structure... Structure is not always bad, and so there can be. It's easy to get in the ideal of the the best or highest practice would be unstructured practice. I think it's a very powerful and profound practice, uh, but sometimes it's like no, actually, a little bit of structure would allow you to do something. Yeah, and when you're on these retreats, um, you talked about getting together with a group of friends. Are you actually actively doing any teaching within that context? Do you see yourself as occupying a mentor role at all? Is that happening? So it's complicated. So these retreats, there's nobody like sitting up on the front cushion giving Dharma talks or anything like Mm -hmm. that. There's nothing like that. But we'll sit together during meals and we get to talk with each other about what our practice is. And it is true that sometimes you have uh, different levels of expertise on certain topics. And um, so it is not uncommon because I've been doing this um, longer than most of my younger friends. Most of the people I tend to go on retreats with are younger than me, you know, maybe in their 
you know, late 30s to early 40s, and I might have 10 or 15, 20 years of practice on them, right? And so um, it's not uncommon for me to have read something they hadn't read or done some practice they may not have done or maybe done more of it, Just, but that's just sort of a time thing, right? And so I might lend that expertise, but it's very much a sense of... Um, people in the group lend their wisdom and we kind of like someone will say, oh, had this come up and you might get four or five people offering advice on it, right? So it's much more distributed. It's much more sort of naturally egalitarian is the wrong word because that also sort of can become an ideal of everybody's equal, which is not true. But it also very much is not imposing sort of artificial hierarchies where people's voices are not being heard and people can't just have a regular conversation like two regular people. Mm. And we're all doing the practice together. And so, yes, it is true that, you know, sometimes differential expertise will come out, you know, as um, Ken McLeod was talking about, it makes sense sometimes to rebel against um, hierarchies of authority that are based on institutional designation or something, but rebelling against hierarchies of competence, sometimes not so good. And, you know, if I have some confidence, so competence that might be helpful to someone, I'll lend it if they wish or not. Sometimes I just let other people take it. And the people I'm practicing with tend to actually also be a pretty strong bunch of practitioners. So that's that's the end of the pool that I, for whatever f- reason, am more called to, feel more comfortable in, is more interesting for me as small groups of good friends who just like to go deep and have fun exploring that together and share that journey yeah. over a nice meal and then go sit. Yeah, it's an interesting hobby in a sense. And I don't mean hobby to belittle it, but that characteristic you're describing of, of, of fun and exploration and a team of explorers, really, yeah. going out into the sort of the the mental unknown. So, the, yeah, the casino practice is obviously quite specialised. Um, some of our listeners might be familiar with this. But it, apart from the exploration side of what you've just described, the next question I've got for you is connected to progress. Do you see what you're doing as an extension of work you've done before, or is it merely uh, exploring new terrain because it's interesting to do so? It's definitely both. So it clearly builds on all the foundations of retreats and techniques and things I've learned along the way. Yeah. Um, but every time I do this, unusual things show up that I wouldn't have known to ask for, that I actually often don't even find on the standard maps uh, or uh, haven't seen described in that kind of way before. And that's not just true for me, but a lot of the other people doing this were like, okay, yeah, the sort of general categories of kinds of things that might occur, yes, but that sort of specific way it hit at that moment or you know, the importance for that person or mm. the psychological relevance or the specific images or the other curious combination of things. I'm, I'm a phenomenologist, so I can, I have a sort of a catalog, t- cataloging tendency where I'll remember a lot of weird little things that have happened. Mm. And often I'm like, wow, that's new. Like, I, I don't remember that one happening or hearing that one described. That's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's been very much in that spirit of, yes, there's some structure, so, and these are old practices. They come out of the commentaries. And even before that, though, they're not as well-defined. You find them in the Pali Canon, old, you know, casino practices, traditional Buddhist meditation stuff, not done much anymore any, uh, these days, which is too bad because very, very powerful. And, uh, but the specific effects that it leads to continue to be surprising in its depth. And I continue to remember the fact that one of the four imponderables is the depths of meditation, and so while I'm sort of very much a mappy person in some ways, I'm very much enjoying 
just going out there regardless of whether or not it maps well, because it often doesn't actually. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are certain stages of progress in terms of sort of powering up that are pretty predictable, mm -hmm. right? Certain, you know, uh, you know, I've done enough of these retreats now that the sort of arc of the retreat uh, in terms of getting up to the interesting territory follows pretty st stock and standard patterns in some ways in terms of the development and the feel of each day sort of have a similarity to them. But once you get to the high power concentration stuff, then all bets are off. It's like, wow, each retreat has been different. One was all mostly about triangles. A lot. One was a lot about like rains and winds and very just sort of primal elemental stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, one had a tremendous amount of sort of interesting stuff related to processing traumatic things I had seen in the emergency department. It was a lot of the theme of that whole retreat. And then that just disappeared and didn't show up in subsequent ones. Um, one... Uh, so anyway, they each have their own quality and their own character that they sort of take on. And like, mm -hmm. I couldn't have predicted those. I didn't know. I mean, maybe I guess I could have sort of in retrospect a few of them, but most of it I, I wouldn't have even known. It's a curious business. It makes me, it sounds very similar to some of the conversations you might have with people who are active sort of psychonauts exploring psychedelics. But of course, you're not doing that. They seem to be navigating very similar terrain. Yes. Yeah. And so actually this most recent retreat we did, there was a whole conversation about some people who have more psychonautic expertise than me, mm. actually some vastly more mm. um, practitioners of the psychonautic arts. And we actually compare and contrast this with uh, those sorts of practices or experiences. And clearly there's a lot of overlap. This tends to be slower to get there, obviously, rather than you know, a few seconds or 20 to 30 minutes or an hour, this to get to the interesting stuff takes days, mm -hmm. um, sometimes a week or two. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's a pretty high cost of entry. It lasts a lot longer. So once you start getting into this weird territory, once you take that long going up, it takes longer to come down. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're not normal for days afterwards. And the effects can continue to linger and the aftershocks can happen days to weeks after the retreat ends. This is this is deep structural rewiring, and it seems to um, a lot of the more psychonautic people were saying, you know, there's definitely a sense of more clear control in some ways that you can get into. I want this color. I want this sort of image. I want to sort of go in this kind of direction. But there's also for the things that show up that you're not expecting, the entities, the energetics, the magical stuff, the archetypal stuff, the whatever there's much more of a sense of relating to it from a place of high clarity that is different from the entheogenic things where it may you may have some of those center, centers more altered by whatever you were on. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not going to say better or worse, just no. different. No. Um, but some of the things we describe in terms of weird experiences, clearly there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Apart from the obvious... Um, personal enjoyment that you're expressing in exploring all of this. I mean, why, why bother exploring these, these spaces of the mind? Um, so the question of why is a fascinating one. And I could attempt to sort of retrofit some kind of psychological something over it, but it would probably be a very coarse evaluation of a much deeper karmic process or deep psychological process or I don't know, early childhood stuff I'm not even familiar with. Why does wizardry <laughs> call to me so hard? Why do the does this strange deep end of the pool uh, call to me so strongly? Uh, I don't know. I could guess. But um, it, it's, you know, why do some people like whatever strange thing they're into? I don't know. <laughs> like, 
You're just wired that way. I'm just wired that there way. And it's it's yeah. very compelling to me still. Yeah, yeah. And it, it every time I go into where I'm like, wow, yes, this is the right thing to be doing. This feels so right. And in other sense, so some of the things that are very fun about it are a validation in some ways of a lot of old material that does not get a lot of great press these days, or particularly in those coming from more scientific materialist backgrounds mm. or from sort of more rigid backgrounds that Buddhism really at its best is a you know dry secular tradition of pure techniques that allow you to have some certain specific mental upgrades related to mindfulness and a non-judgmental you know sort of attitude towards your emotional life or something or whatever like uh, yeah, okay yeah but there's all this other stuff and what's interesting is when you read the old texts um, there's this amazing sense that they were doing all these remarkable things and they were having all these remarkable experiences. And a lot of people just write all that stuff off. And when you actually go and get your concentration strong enough, you go, okay, yeah, easy to write off until you've gotten your concentration that strong. And then afterwards, it doesn't make any sense to write it off because you've been there. Mm. You know, you've traveled to realms, you've had entities show up, you've you know, had you drawn weird magical symbols in the air and closed your eyes and seen that that extra dimension, that triangle that you just drew with sort of red fire in front of you using your finger when you close your eyes is like, you know, multitude of fractal universes that like are all ha resonating with that triangle you just drew or something. I mean, like that's and you're doing it sober. I'm using air quotes here, right? Because, you know, we're not any substances, uh, but we are definitely powering our concentration up to a level where you suddenly understand why these nuns and monks back in the day were talking about this stuff and why the old texts are full of it. And so full of interactions with entities, full of realms, full of powers. And I can reproducibly get to territory where suddenly that stuff is accessible, not necessarily controllable very well or predictable occasionally sort of it seems to be kind of for limited periods of time fades very rapidly as soon as i cut the concentration power most of it not all of it mm. um but still fascinating so let's give a bit of context here because some of this is obviously quite abstract for some of our listeners you know you're talking about concentration again and i think that's probably something worth saying a bit more about um you're saying concentration how else could you say that? How could you describe what's actually going on there with the mind? What is it you're learning to do? And why is that then a basis for other things that can happen? Yeah, that's a great question. So the word concentration in the ordinary sense just means the ability to put your attention on something and sort of keep it there. Or the ability to tune attention stably in very specific ways, right? And Often in a Buddhist context or a meditative context, it gets yoked to the phrase one-pointed concentration. Well, that point, you know, some people think, oh, I'm just concentrating on like the head of a pin or something, some teeny little spot, right? But what ends up happening is that the amount of the field of experience on which you can stably concentrate without your mind wandering off at much or eventually at all uh, becomes more and more broad and then more and more sort of deep with sense of volume. And the area that you can then concentrate on can eventually, for some people, sometimes become immersive, meaning 
that the experiences you're having or creating or paying attention to, you now feel like you're totally in them in the sense that I'm sitting in your living room or and in that same way, they can become that broad and strong. And what's interesting is that concentration in terms of depth to it is not just exclusive attention, because you can gain exclusive attention and not have anything that magical happen. But then there are all these depths to the skill of concentration and ways it can be developed that might surprise someone. And they certainly surprised me. I didn't know that my mind could do these interesting things in these kinds of ways until I simply put in the time and the hours, right? And I took a, I took a ordinary, straightforward practice, in this case, look at a light source, close your eyes, follow the colors until you've got nothing interesting to follow, open your eyes, look at the source for another minute or two, close your eyes, follow the colors as far as they go, and do that again and again and again. And if you start doing that in really high dose in a short period of time with a good container, and then reality can start getting really, really, really interesting in the visual system. And if you're adding a mantra, the auditory system it can start becoming remarkable and you can start learning to tune this incredible radio to all these very strange experiences that previously you didn't know you could do. And I continue to be astounded that there does not seem to be an end point to the depths of concentration in that kind of way, in terms of the how far it can go into very altered, surprising, remarkable, interesting territory. And it's taught me all kinds of interesting stuff, like about the elements, right? This is another thing that doesn't get like much classical play, sorry, much play these days, except in certain metaphysical, magical circles, kind of. But to actually be sitting there like, experiencing the water element as if you're literally, it seems like you're sitting underwater in a flowing stream and there's bubbles all around you and you're literally in this thing of water and you feel like you're connecting to the divine essence of the flowing water element that has become the whole of your experience. That's a different way of relating to the water element than just oh, sort of we find the water, you know, water on this table and it says it's about emotions and maybe it's, you know, it's this kind of thing and maybe it's a feminine element or whatever. Like that's sort of a very intellectual, theoretical understanding of the element. And then there's the actual thing where you're in it and it's or you're suddenly talking to the water goddess or whatever and she's or whatever strange elemental magical experiences you're having, that's sort of a whole different level. And when I went into magical training and stuff a long time ago, that was the kind of stuff I was looking for. And a lot of people, I think a lot of my friends have gotten into magical training and they started doing these rituals. And then it never really got to the level of experience they were looking for, except maybe sometimes when they did in theogenic stuff. So some of my magical friends also end up sort of in theogenic explorers to get to some place where they're having something kind of feels more magical. Well, this for me, and for those people who like it, is a way to actually get to that cool territory, but you're doing it, you know, air quotes, sober. But I mean, you're, you're sort of from a certain point of view, high as a kite on concentration, because we're not normal when we're doing this, right? Our brains get very, very different from an ordinary state of mind in some ways. Again, these are terms we use in order to try and understand phenomena, which are subjective, ultimately. Is there a difference here between a trance state and what you're describing. So the word trance state, again, what does that mean? So it's interesting if you look at the 
it's an old word, right? Victorian era trance state has this amazing amount of overlay, right? With seances and the late 1800s and 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 all all kinds of stuff. Well, actually, those sorts of things are in the territory we're talking about. So, um, yeah. Um, And if you look at the Polytech Society, they translated jhana as chance. So that was the word they were using then about 100 years ago or so, or however long they were doing these translations. And that was their equivalent. They thought jhana, which to us means sort of deep meditative state, uh, they were using trance for. And so it's just another word for it, right? With each of these words have different cultural overlays, depending on where you're coming from and what sources you've read. But that is sort of the territory we're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's that kind of stuff. Sure. One of the criticisms of meditators and people that engage in certain types of practice is that it can lead to... Um, a degree of abstraction which is so so intense or high that we might be straying into mindlessness um, or zombification of the mind or, you know, a sort of uh, detachment from reality, which is certainly one way you could tell a story in response to what you've described. But that's not my story, but it's a story. And I wonder if there's a way we can make a connection between some of what you're doing and some of the research that's going on at the moment into what's actually happening to the mind, not just for people that are practicing mindfulness, but in the research that's been exploring um, those who claim some degree of enlightenment or some sort of transformation and what they're trying to sense or measure in the brain activity. So the first one is um, explain in simple terms how what you're describing is not different from a form of, let's say, zombie mind or just stepping out into a complete abstract disembodied abstracted state well there's no brain eating that's the first thing strictly no brain eating no matter how much people might want to <laughs> it's just out right so we have very strict um, rules against that all right um no uh, <laughs> so in terms of zombie mind i don't know exactly what that means but uh to do these things that i'm interested in you actually have to have an extremely clear well-trained mind it is not easy to get into these things it's a lot of work uh these are stages and states that require some degree of talent, um, a lot of determination. Uh, We have what we call Neko's triad of uh, patience, faith, and curiosity to be able to do these practices, to be able to get through the many, many hours it takes to gain entrance into the interesting stuff. So this is very much the opposite of zombie mind. These are high-end mental athletes who are doing this kind of stuff. And it's not easy at all. So this is, I would consider, um, it's more than just sort of mental gymnastics, but the skills of a mental gymnast are incredibly useful for doing these valuable things. And they can be very personally transformative and even healing. Uh, when people get up into this kind of territory, it can be quite powerful and revealing as well of a lot of Uh, shadow sides in the sort of Jungian sense, archetypal sense. Uh, It's also an opportunity to practice with layers of mind and aspects of ourselves that we often don't see. So one of the things I want, when you mentioned at the beginning, we might talk about Ken Wilber. This would actually be a good intro to the teeniest little taste of that. So I have this model of spiritual development that includes developing all these different bands of consciousness, very much going back to his first book, The Spectrum of Consciousness. And one of those, or two of those bands are the magical and mythical. 
right? So as human beings, we have these aspects of ourselves that are very magical and very mythical. Even people who fight tooth and nail to keep themselves extremely scientifically, materialistically, rationally on track. If you really ask them questions about what they believe or experiences they've had or their relationship to certain topics, all of a sudden you'll find, no, that they have magical thinking just like the rest of us. And that's just a, a band of human experience, if you will. And I think it's one that's not well explored in a lot of the Vipassana communities, particularly when they, or the you know, Zen communities would say, oh, that's all illusion, don't go there, or Goenka, don't go into the weird stuff, or, you know, let me criticize these traditions. They're focusing on one specific aspect of development that's their thing. But to do that exclusively and say that you shouldn't develop the other aspects, I think is missing something, at least for me. I personally want to be well-developed, not only in the sort of non-dual technical meditation, precise awareness of my mental and physical processes, but I also want to be well-developed in the deep shadow end, the magical end, the end where the world is sort of more enchanted, uh, where um, the vast majority of the religious traditions of the world came out of, right? These are powerful human experiences um, where the myths and legends, uh, where the where the um, strange things live. To be able to explore that, I consider uh, it, um, part of my birthright and utterly fascinating and valuable and revealing. And it helps me come to a better relationship to it because I think if people haven't explored that, uh, there is a possibility that they might not understand those aspects of themselves that may still come out through other channels, sort of dressed in rationalism or dressed in some other garb, when in fact it was actually some deeper sort of magical thinking process archetypal aspect that's sort of getting polished and kind of made all tidy and you clean it up and you brush its hair and you take it out or something in public as this thing that you think is really so rational. And maybe it actually isn't. And maybe if you had taken the time to look back at some of your shadow stuff or your deeper weird stuff, that maybe you would have found something there that you would go, okay, actually, no, that's me dressing up this deeper, strange part of myself as something that's mm -hmm. supposed to be all prim and proper and mm -hmm. maybe actually in reality isn't. Yeah. One thing that's becoming clear so far in our conversation today is that, you know, this is a passion of yours in many ways. Yes. And, you know, the, the fun and exploration side of that is key. You know, it seems to me that you could probably say that you're a member of a, a sort of extreme in a positive sense, but an extreme mind explorers club. Yes. You know, and these practices are important to you in that way. And, and you get a lot of out, of out of exploring it. And uh, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, you know, there are other questions I'm not qualified to to, to certainly answer. And I don't want to go in that direction. And, and it, But it does come, bring us up to the, the sorts of questions that some people might get very stuck in, which is, well, you know, what's real here and what's objectively true and what's actually taking place in a person's mind? And it's, you know, who knows? I mean, phenomenologically speaking, there's value in what you're going through. Yes. And... Um, you love exploring it, and why not? This is great. Yeah, I think it's interesting as well for someone like yourself who's got such a strong, let's say, traditional practice background in stabilizing awareness. Well, these are traditional practices. Yeah, which you said, right, okay, let's say it's traditional for us in the West, as we've understood Buddhism, which tends to think in terms of develop concentration, then explore insight, and then off you go. What you're, what you're doing instead is you've got this foundation of a capacity to focus your mind very, very stably. And then you go off and explore with that base. Well, so the, the limited amount of the stuff that's translated to the highly secular sort of Protestant influenced 
um, scientific materialist West, it's just an unbelievably small fraction of what you find in the Buddhist traditions as living entities today, even in Asia, as well as in the old texts. And right. So like I just for whatever reason, just don't buy that I should put all of those unbelievably constraining filters on this amazing thing. Yeah. Uh, that just doesn't work for me personally. Yeah, if it exactly. works for someone else, enjoy your filters, enjoy your censorship, enjoy your, you know, your cutting things off, enjoy whatever your, your stripped down tradition, fine, have fun with it. Cool. If that's your bag, baby, go for it. But, <laughs> but it, it ain't just, yours. It just doesn't happen to be mine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I, I, you know, very much reserve the right to explore the grand old thing. And uh, that's my idea of a good time. <laughs> There was another question in there, but it's, we're going to come back to it in a minute. Some of our listeners might, might not be familiar with the fact that, or might be astounded to hear that you at one point, you know, sort of made your name for yourself in some way through your book. Mastering right? the core teachings of the Buddha, there an unusually go. hardcore Dharma book. In which, you know, you, you made a claim back then about being an arhat or arhat, and that's old hat now, right? But it's still there. I mean, we're still, we're still with some of that. One of the interesting things to do here is to think about how we describe these things without relying on Buddhist language or even spiritual language. And I thought this might be quite nice for us to do now. If you think back to the, the time when that claim was made, or rather you, you said, look, these things have happened, they indicate this, and therefore I am this. If you are today somebody who gets to define themselves as enlightened or awakened to some degree, and if you were asked by somebody who has no idea about what even those terms really mean, what would you say is it, and why is it important today? Okay, it's a great question, very useful question. So what I train to do is notice my sensate experience. Very straightforwardly, there is no other basis of meditative exploration than our immediate experience. The past is gone, the future has not arisen, and we have these transient sensations here right now. Those are actually the fundamental basis of our life, right? Those are how we judge things, how we navigate this world, how we, you know, happiness or sadness or pleasure or pain or gain or loss or all of those things arise. And that's what we're in. We're sitting here in this moment in the sensate experience. Except before I had this very weird relationship to it that did not actually make any sense to me. So... My physics training, my chemistry training, my mathematical training even, and some of my philosophical training convinced me utterly that things were just happening naturally. This is a lawful universe we live in. And yet I had the bizarre illusion that there was some part of this sensate world that was standing outside of the causality of the universe, somehow beyond its laws, beyond its, you know, beyond any reach, as a separate thing that somehow was always watching everything. It was permanently disconnected from every aspect of the universe. It somehow stood outside the universe and yet was unbelievably influenced by it, right? And yet all of my scientific training, as well as common sense even, told me that this clearly had to be illusory. When I ran into this um, in a book called The Dancing Wooly Masters, I thought, okay, clearly I'm delusional, right? This doesn't make any sense that I have this notion, this very felt experience, it seemed, that I was a controller, a doer, a knower, a watcher that was separate from this. I also was steeped in the scientific model of the brain, right? So I'm, you know, I've got an MD and an MSPH and was a 
physics major for a while and a chemistry major and went to the North Carolina School of Science and Math. I did astrophysics in high school and, you know, it's the background I'm coming from. And yet uh, I was, it irked me incredibly that my lived experience seemed to utterly contradict that, right? So I, I see there really seemed to be a real past for me that was still here somehow and some weird. There really was a future, even though my experience was just now. And that intellectually really bothered me. And viscerally, it was annoying too. I got the sense something's wrong with this picture. And so the pesky Buddhist said, hey, if you just pay attention to your sensate experience, you will notice that it is transient. Right? that it is constantly changing, which my scientific materialist worldview also told me, you will notice that all of these experiences are actually sort of mind-generated. I don't want to get into the whole things, the mind-only school versus whatever. I really don't want to go there. But, no, no, but, but, but that you know, black is not actually a thing. Red is not actually a thing. These are constructed in a brain somewhere. A rose doesn't actually smell like a rose. It's just a bunch of chemicals, Right. You know, photons aren't actually blue or some color. That's our brain interpreting them for us, our consumption. Things aren't actually pleasant or unpleasant. They're just, you know, atoms and molecules, right? That, right? They aren't actually those things, right? This is just all created in some holodeck brain somewhere. And what's the relationship between that brain and these experiences here? I don't know, but... These experiences here clearly cannot be the real thing. And the fact that I'm identifying with these experiences as if they are the real thing. So I'm identifying with the holodeck as if it's actually the machine generating the holodeck is, is clearly isn't, right? I knew that. Intellectually, I knew that. And when Buddhism promised a way to resolve that paradox such that my own experience could line up with... Um, my what I knew intellectually to be true. I was incredibly excited. There were other reasons I wanted a spiritual practice. It's way more complicated than that. But um, this was one of actually the core ones driving it, which is more intellectual than most people are going into this. Again, I'm a supreme geek. I can't help myself. It's just the way I was built. And so, uh, and then when I started noticing, wait, these thoughts just come and go. As any, the first thing you notice when you sit down to meditate, any of you have sat down, even just do it now, can you control your thoughts? Well, no. Maybe a few of them sometimes you kind of seem like you can, but the vast majority you can't. Can you make them stable and last? No. So your thoughts aren't you. Can you make any, any aspect of this moment stable? No. Um, colors can arise again. Sensations can arise again. That seem kind of like previous ones, but they aren't actually the same thing. That's straightforward, right? They're, there's not actually continuity. There's repetition. And we take repetition of experiences to mean continuity of existence, which clearly I'm not the same person I was even a few seconds ago, physiological different, experientially different. Yeah, there's some pattern recognition that can kind of loosely put it together, but it's clearly done with smoke and mirrors and it's a loose approximation of actually what's going on, right? And so by just paying attention to my sensate experience really well, Eventually, stage by stage, layer of illusion by layer of illusion, I came to realize directly in an immediate way that now is hardwired into the core processing of experience. It, it, it arises this way before it you know, even shows up. Everything is just truly transient, right? So the, the, um, everything is truly just disappearing. Thoughts happen on their own. Actions happen on their own. Intentions to do things happen on their own. 
as I had observed before momentarily with concentration, with analysis, with a mindful mind. I could see, oh yeah, that happens. And then I would go back to my delusional way. And then I could see, oh yeah, that happens that way. That's true. And then I would go back to delusion. And eventually I got fluent or naturally able to recognize the true nature of things, meaning they come and go on their own. They're not actually a stable, separate controller, doer, watcher. And then that became hardwired. And just like I learned to read, right? So initially learning to read this analogy I use a lot. I had to start with C-A-T, you know, and sound out the letters. Oh, that's cat right? Now I see the word cat and it auto-translates to meaning of cat. I don't have to think through what it means. In the same way, I did all these practices and I learned to read my experience as it is. And I became fluent in my experience and I became used to noticing. Intentions just arise on their own. And now it's obvious they just arise on their own. It's, it's, there's no, I can't unsee it. Like I can't unsee that C-A-T spells cat, right? It's just, it's, it's instant. And so in that same way, things auto-liberate, things auto-reveal themselves in their true nature. I just wired my experience to be clear enough to show how things are. And that's very freeing to have this, all this processing power in the brain, not dedicated to trying to prop up an illusion of continuity where there is none, to try to figure out, is, am I now the back of my head? Am I now my eyes? Am I now this thought? Am I now this feeling in my stomach? What am I? And to constantly be trying to work, to craft the sense of a continuous controlling Daniel where there never was one in a field that is utterly natural and just happening on its own, that whole process is stopped. And this is way better. So you can call that whatever you like, pick your favorite word for it, but everything's just happening on its own, transient, ephemeral, um, non-dual, if you will. There's no sense of subject. There's no annoying sense of watcher. All the sensations that used to be pretending to be a watcher, a doer, a controller, are just more qualities that are happening like the table or, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, could you do that then? Because the, the language you've used so far is all language I'm quite familiar with amongst different kinds of practitioners. Could you describe it in any other atypical way, both in terms of absence and presence? So absence, yeah. so I could use another loaded Buddhist term like clinging. Well, how, there, about, how about a non-Buddhist term? A non-Buddhist term, you mean like a Vedanta term? No, no spiritual terms. No spiritual <laughs> terms. So natural is natural affair. Okay. So things very much have the feel of happening perfectly naturally. Okay. They're just happening on their own. It doesn't seem like a spiritual term to me. And because of the clarity the direct clarity of experience that everything is speaking for itself is another interesting thing. So everything's just standing for itself. So each of the colors is just where they are. Each of the physical sensations are just occurring where they are. They don't need a linear representational thing in the middle somewhere that's trying to make sense of them. Uh, they, they just stand for themselves very directly. And so before, I had the sense that there was this linear mind that was going out and sampling. I mean, it, we, all, we I started practicing this way, right? Oh, there's the breath. I know my breath. No, the breath was just there. It was just standing for itself. And then the thing that happened after it was this mental impression mm -hmm. that was very different from the breath. It was just this coarse little thing in space, right? It was mm -hmm. nothing like the actual physical sensations of the breath. It was incredibly coarse representation. Yeah. And so very simply... 
now the breath is just the breath and coarse mental representations are just these teeny little things that occur in space when they occur, yeah. like memories or speculations. And they just something. occur naturally and yeah. they just disappear. Yeah. And so there's something incredibly freeing about that. It also boundaries just, there's, there's no normal boundaries in the sense of the way there were before. I mean, there's still the obvious things are different colors and different shapes and different textures, but the experiences of this whole room just happening so every or the you know this whole set of experiences is just happening mm-hmm. and it's very it all knows itself it's all just occurring on its own and that's great it doesn't mean that this human is, doesn't still have all its bi- all its biology it still has all of the biology of a human mm-hmm. although clearly something is sort of different about it yeah. people want to make the implications of this fit all their special models you all have fun with that enjoy see how that works out for you mm-hmm. um but it is much better having been before and after. Uh, there's no comparison. This is way better. I would highly recommend it. Um, doesn't mean it has to be your bag, baby, but it is mine. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, that's helpful. And, you know, a couple of words that come to mind, one of them that might be useful for, for those less experienced with this kind of thing um, is this idea of non-elaboration. But I think there are two forms to that. One is you're telling a story which you keep maintaining and within that story, you tell other stories about the things you experience in the world. And that's quite coarse or gross to use the language you were uh, moving towards. Yes. But another sense of non-elaboration it could be understood as like non-interference or non-pollution, in which, you know, you're not extending out this this compulsive need, as Buddhists would call it, to grasp at things or shape them within the imagination. I think for me, um, this may actually be a point where I'm curious about a similar kind of exploration, but often a different direction to you. So in the sense that uh, much of what you're describing is very familiar to me. And one of the things I find interesting in terms of exploration is how to make sense of that quality of being in the world and and yet find ways to to understand it or to make sense of it within the kind of criticisms that I hear some people making of it. So one of the things that comes up when people use language like true nature, reality, things as they are, is there's this interesting switch that some of our more uh, intellectual listeners make, and they'll move towards questions about you know the ontological nature of things, right? The nature of reality. And I don't know if there's a way to, to, to get beyond this divide, but um, you know when I'm listening to you, if I listen with my phenomenology hat on, it's all fine. You know, you can talk about as much wacky sounding magical stuff as you like. And for me, it's all interesting. And, you know, I think I know what you're talking about to some degree, because I have experience both long term with uh, meditation practices, shamanic practices, but also with various uh, happy substances that grow in the wild. (laughs) (laughs) But it's funny that for me, um, the sort of stuff that you feel passionate about, and it's great It's great to see your your face light up when you talk about it, is the stuff I kind of, I, it sounds nice, but it's not something that, it's not my bag. Yes. That's where you and I differ, right? Which doesn't mean I'm going to make a value judgment about it because that's, that's irrelevant. Um, you it doesn't know, I'm, have I'm to be passion. anybody's bag necessarily. No, no, but it's also, I think that point that I made before, perhaps um, lightly and off the cuff, although that wasn't really the point, is that, it's a passion for you and a passion in a positive sense. And it's, first of all, it's great to have one of those and many people don't. And it's great to be able to combine one with something that you've invested so much time in and that's produced so much benefit for yourself and for the others that you've worked with. My passion instead goes off into how much uh, how much can I carry some of the 
non-conceptual, non-elaborating, non-grasping experience into the depths of human social construction and still experience it and still embrace the kinds of questions that are coming from the more intellectually minded out there. And to me, that's that's kind of where I, I get excited, oddly enough. So when people say, well, you know, what you're talking about doesn't make any sense. You've got these Buddhists, they're going through this practice and they're making all these claims about reality and they're just plainly wrong because we know that the world is socially constructed and you can never truly know reality. <laughs> and, you know, yeah, basically cute. we're all stuck in ideology. Well, my initial instinct a while back would be, well, th- th- what? what are they talking about? Uh, the second one was to go, well, I'm going to ask a philosophical question here, but I'm going to do it for myself, and I'm going to take it as a practice question. What would happen if all the claims they stated were true? Would that actually change anything in what I've done, what I'm doing, and what I do next? You see? Claims they've stated. What does that yeah, mean? Yeah, in the sense that- of that they, if one of the claims is that actually you cannot experience reality, okay. right? Or when you say you experience the world as it is naturally, that's not really true. It's actually just another story or another way that, say, of subjectively and ideologically telling yourself a story which allows you to have certain types of experience and not others. I'll add another bit, and then we'll see what you have to say about this too. We do have to be honest that a lot of these uh, practices come within very strong and very compelling stories, right? And many of those stories within Buddhism and Neo Advaita and other spiritual traditions, they do often fail to make that distinction between ontological or phenomenological stories too. And part of that is history. They didn't have the, let's say, the intellectual baggage or resources or know-how or knowledge that they could necessarily always make that kind of distinction. Actually, they totally did. So that's when I hear some people say stuff like that, I just want to push back with a lot of force because the ontological discussions in Buddhism are key and actually have split traditions over ontology. So like why you get a new sect in Buddhism is a question of ontology. Why the Hindus and the Buddhists don't get a, you know, get together and, you know, sing Kumbaya all the time is because of ontology. And questions and debates about ontology and very specific meta debates about ontology, whether or not you can even know some of these things. And the Buddha was actually a great meta ontologist in saying certain questions are not helpful, certain questions you cannot know or answer, certain questions you might be able to answer, but even if you get an answer, it's not helpful. Certain questions are very worth answering in your own experience. Experience. So he would adopt a philosophical frame, an empirical frame, a pragmatic frame, a utilitarian frame. And he was very much aware of the fact that he was doing that and clearly did so with an extremely high degree of intellectual rigor. I don't for an instant think that we are now have the, the download on meta-ontology in a way that they did not. That is just totally ridiculous. And in fact, the level of philosophical sophistication I see now in comparison to the kind of discussions that happen in the Axial Age, even with the Greeks or, you know, the Platonists or the Neoplatonists or whatever, that I see the, um, what's the word, uh, the current crop of philosophers attempting to match their glory. I still think the vast majority don't come anywhere close. Um, And they fail to appreciate through their own unbelievably arrogant and narrow lenses what was going on in the discussions back then. So I really want to push back with everything I've got on that one. All right, that's an interesting uh, reaction there, yeah. The second thing I want to push back on is really I am an ontologically agnostic, empirical pragmatist. 
and I'm very comfortable adopting that frame. So ontologically agnostic, meaning, as I said, this is the holodeck. I don't know what's creating the holodeck. I can take a lot of guesses about it. I'm well-versed in the scientific method, the debates in modern physics, issues of mathematics. Is this pure information? Is there an underlying quantized structure to reality? I could go on and on and on. How many dimensions do you need? Uh, like that gets really tedious really quickly, so I'm just going to not go there. But just, just be comfortable that I have a familiarity with all of those discussions and debates. Right. So ontology, obviously, is a complicated question. However, being an empirical pragmatist, for utilitarian purposes, I'm willing to adopt an empirical frame and say that when I'm talking about sensate reality, which is how I framed in my sensate experience, that's how I framed the whole discussion very, very carefully to make sure we were talking within that frame, because my sensate experience is actually very important for my life. And anybody who's come to the level of intellectual disconnect where they don't agree with that statement, I don't have a basis for a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. And they can go have their fun, and we're not going to get along. But if you're willing to take on the premise that your sensate experience is somehow relevant to your life, <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> hopefully I didn't lose too many people there. Um, but if you did, God help you. <laughs> um, you know, my sensate experience is relevant to my life and is the primary thing by which I would judge my life. In fact, I'd say that's sort of all there is from a certain very immediate point of view. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I can relate so to that. Being an ontologically agnostic, can't see the machine creating the holodeck. True. Empirical. This is the basis of all underlying scientific exploration, all thought about this reality, all concepts about our experience, all attempts to figure out what the ontology is, right? Is Hume, uh, David Hume, the great Scotsman philosopher, is extraordinarily hard to refute. Um, and if you're that good, you win the prize, right? His, his sense of what empiricism means in the grand British, so in the great British, you know, empiricist sense, uh, very, very hard to refute and very practical and reasonable and just happens to be a great set of assumptions if you care to do practices that actually lead to beneficial transformations. Regardless of any underlying truth, if you're willing to adopt that frame, so that's the pragmatism, so that's my utilitarian aspect. And I will claim that anybody who says they're not a pragmatic or utilitarian empiricist is delusional. There's no way you aren't a pragmatic empiricist. Okay, that's a pretty strong claim, right? The deconstruction, oh no, I couldn't be an empiricist, I couldn't be a pragmatist. Yeah, except how do you put a value judgment on what you do? Because you're a utilitarian pragmatist, right? How do you evaluate the basis of any of your arguments? You're an empiricist. How do you formulate a basis for anything? The arguments themselves are part of your experience, right? There's no frigging way you aren't a pragmatic empiricist. Right. And there's no way you're not self-serving in this. Right. There's no way. I'm sorry. You're self-serving in this. Now, the point about social construction, that this is all social construction. No, when I slap myself in the head, the raw experience of me slapping myself in the head is not social construction. Right. That's actually just raw data. Right. You can think about it. You can talk about it. I can call that a slap. And that's conditioned by my language or the culture I've grown up in. But the experience of it is the, the experience. And the vast majority of my experience yeah. is not the intellect, 
right? The vast majority of my experience is actually just physical sensations, visuals, colors, the space I'm in, right? That's mm -hmm. the vast majority of it. So I think that people who are trying to get so lost in their heads that they say deconstruction is the only thing there is, yeah, they're just out of their freaking minds. Like, I mean, I'm sorry, like, I don't mean to bash on an entire intellectual tradition, but uh, dudes, seriously, get over yourselves and ground it down a little bit. Come on. It's not that there are points to deconstructing things. It's not that it's not useful within a certain frame. It's not that you can't elucidate certain truths, expose certain blindnesses of intellectual thought. Okay, true. But is this the be all and end all and the reasonable basis for a deep spiritual transformative practice? Yeah, I think it's going to be pretty limiting past a certain point. Not that it isn't all fun and a good time and you can feel really good about yourselves as you shred things down. Yeah, but, you know, the whole building back up thing as we were talking about earlier at dinner, you know. That's all good. And I think you probably just vented uh, some of the complaints of, <laughs> of many a spiritual practitioner that knows a thing or two about the history of philosophy. But I think you probably managed to capture the feeling or the complaint that would come from many people who are intellectually uh, reasonably well read on some of these matters but tend to uh, prioritize let's say the spiritual the phenomenological or the experiential and interestingly enough I actually come from that too yeah that's my background and so if we go back to one of the earlier questions I raised for you which was you know where's the challenge or the struggle that uh, I have conversations with quite a few other ex-teachers, current teachers and long-term practitioners is with is about this idea of the edge. You know, where's the edge of, of where you currently are, right? Um, in terms of some form of development, whether it's spiritual, whatever we want to call that, emotional, psychological, relational, social, political, etc., etc. You know, although um although certainly I, I hear what you're saying with your with some of the, the, the say the, the more evident complaints about this these more recent intellectual traditions I'm utterly curious about them as a practitioner first of all not an intellectual because I don't consider myself one and what I find is I'd say two things just to balance out the discussion a little bit so it doesn't become a sort of you know a sort of a binary debate about sides arguing over over matters but I think one of the things that we learned from uh, those who would push for the social constructivist viewpoint, I don't agree with them, of course. You know, I mean, I'm going to stand on your side of the table if I have to stand on some side. The, 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 uh, the cup is there. Pain is pain. You jump out of a window, you're probably going to die if it's high enough, for sure. But I think, I think that's a kind of caricature, really, of that kind of thinking. And I think um, because of the relationship between politics and activism, and the sort of times we live in, we've got a lot of caricatures of certain ideas. And I actually, I would say this, I think the caricature is on both sides. So I think a lot of people who haven't got a lot of long-term direct experience of exploring things like deep meditative practice, they produce a caricature of the practitioner, right? Yes. And one of those caricatures is you've got people living in fantasy or illusion who are making great claims, but they're actually off the heads. That's a caricature. Another one is of the spiritual type who's disconnected from the social world, wandering around in bliss. That's a caricature. Do those people exist? I guess they probably still do, but most of us perhaps don't inhabit that terrain. And I think as well, um, one of the reasons we looked at, you know, this addressing anti-intellectualism in Buddhism in the West and spirituality more broadly was actually to challenge some of the caricatures on the other side, you know, that practitioners can have of intellectuals. Do those intellectuals exist? Of course they do. Absolutely. 
but they are often onto something, which is like a little, I would say, an ingredient, which could be quite useful for us to put into the mix to see what happens. So what I was trying to sort of hint at before is the idea that the social constructivists, obviously, like so many you know, people who get lost in theory, it becomes the big meta story for defining everything, right? And as soon as that happens, they've lost themselves, yes. right? Absolutely. But, you know, that's not a reason to say, well, okay, you know, we can just discard the buggers because it's done. What they do recognize, which I think is an interesting terrain for exploration, one I'm exploring phenomenologically, is to what degree are the experiences, these very, very deep experiences that one can experience both in meditation or in ritual, shamanic ritual or dance or music or in the pleasure of company or with psychedelics, where is the role of social formation within that? Not as the form that's creating everything, but it has a role. And I think there's an interesting point there actually where it could meet some of these experiences you have of the symbolic realm as well, you know, of symbols and stories and, you know, archetypal beings and even the elements. And I think for me, at one point, the edge for me was to say, well, you know, I've been involved in shamanic, the shamanic world for 15 plus years. I, I kind of like it. And there's a certain map or framework within that world that I use. And the elements are there. They have archetypal beings, right? They posit the idea that the animals or the rain or a tree or a rock does actually have some sort of platonic essential quality. And that's quite a useful way to relate to those things. And yet at the same time, it's like, well, okay, but then we've got these guys saying, actually, you know, that's kind of socially constructed because when we look at other cultures, they actually view the elements quite differently or they view the trees as having a different archetypal role, or they've got a whole nother set of archetypal beings that they play with. Now, what was one of the solutions we had to that? Perennialism, right? Well, perhaps they're all speaking about the same thing. And then these some more recent, let's say, intellectual tradition comes up and says, yeah, but maybe that's not true too, actually. That's kind of part of the construction of a story. And so I think that that's actually part of the interesting tension that plays out in one's personal phenomenological experience too. Now, what you do with that is another question. What you say about it is another question. And what you take it to mean is another question as well. But in terms of relating to sensei experiences you were talking about, I found it, I've found it very interesting to allow that to come in instead of maybe the, the candlelight or the casino or the, or the symbols and say, what happens to my sensei experience? To what degree can I be with that naturally? Or without grasping or manipulating or controlling and allow you know the possibility that a lot of this is just made up it's just a story so i don't know that makes much sense to you but that's the way i'm trying to tie some of these elements together and reframe it slightly so again i'm extremely familiar with intellectualism and existentialism and does anything actually exist and does anything have meaning and nihilism and sartre and all that stuff right good times if you know somebody's passion it's like beating your head against a brick wall. It feels so good when you stop. Um, but to have beaten your head that way maybe has some value. Okay, cool. And so I, I understand it, right? The, the unbelievable cutting power of the intellect to reduce things to whatever. And yet, for each person, your own experience, your own stories, your own myths, the time and place you, have, you find yourself in, regardless of anybody else, still have power. Um, that's why Harry Potter, for example, is the most popular selling series of all time, I believe, uh, has staggering resonance and cultural power for a lot of 
people the notice the sorry the notion that there may be magical realms there has staggering power for a lot of people the bible one of the best selling books of all time is an extraordinarily magical book from beginning to end from line 1 uh, to the very end and so uh, these things are compelling to us and regardless of any perennial truth or lack of perennial truth or making it up or not making it up these still these things excuse me still have effects they still are emotionally resonant and powerful and causal specifically for you and you in your heart mind brain body system grew up with whatever conditioning you grew up with and something has resonance and something has power and something some messages that you you can call them culturally conditioned or otherwise but it's not really interesting past a certain point okay so they're culturally conditioned or not culturally conditioned or whatever but regardless the effects are still there you can call it whatever you like but the simple fact of these things having something that can call to your heart or some become some way that you can represent your reality in some way that's meaningful those are valuable and knowing what those things are is valuable and being able to work with those things your specific things as you the listener the practitioner regardless of anybody else's experience or reality or what they call it or how you want to relate to it is valuable and so that i think is more interesting than whether or not it's all made up or culturally conditioned or perennial or whatever you if you do these practices will have specific experiences you will ha you might you know if you do these strange things you might have interesting visions or voices or you know connect with entities or who knows what and they will be something for you in that moment that has some power that has some something to it and i think that's interesting regardless of any other consideration and i don't need all the time to subject those realms to the level of existential nihilistic uh, power that my mind is also totally capable of i've gone through my nihilistic and existential phases right good times the you know the arbitrary nature of the sign the fact that everything can be reduced logically to absurdities contradictions paradoxes to mere um uh what's the word artificial designations uh the, the reality can be sliced and diced any way you want it to and okay sure interesting but does that play to my heart or my gut or does that is that actually where the rubber meets the road for a lot of my actual life well luckily no thank you know a, a fact for which i am extraordinarily thankful and the notion of sort of mystics as sort of being dysfunctional bliss wanderers or whatever um i spent 15 years working in hospitals and mostly in emergency departments uh i know something about life and death and suffering uh and so that was what my spiritual practice and these things allowed me to do with greater ease and ability and even helped me heal from some of the damage that did to me right because you you don't go into those sorts of experiences like a war zone uh without paying some sort of emotional price no matter how hard your intellect intellect thinks oh i can handle this i can take this yeah it's still doing something to you at a deeper psychological level and i was incredibly grateful that i had these sort of practices that uh could help me uh recover from some of that and process some of that 
and that I was very glad that I knew a proper relationship to my intellect that wouldn't just willy-nilly dismiss these things simply because it could, regardless of their actual psychological or human value. And so to be able to have a skillful relationship to one's, uh, the cutting power of one's intellect, to the rigors of logic, to one's heart-mind-body system, to the cultural things that one's grown up in, to the ordinary dilemmas of hunger and thirst and desire and frustration, to the deeper magical end of things, to the non-dual end of things, to have a relationship to all of those aspects of life that is skillful and reasonable and have them work together and be in some sort of harmony is vastly more interesting than fixating on one and simply making it everything, right? So I thought it was good to grow in all of those sorts of ways across the whole spectrum of consciousness. I actually just snuck that in there in a sentence or two. And um, that, to me, makes for a much more interesting, rich, and functional life than just fixating on one and making that the be-all and end-all, which I would consider, again, it would be as if, you know, I have five fingers on my right hand, if only I only would use one of them and refuse to use any of the other fingers, like, that would be pretty weird. In the same way, if I only use the cutting power of my mind, or if I only sat in non-duality, or if I only you know, was just magic, magic, magic all day long without any sort of other ordinary, more mundane considerations. Or if I was only just into workaday work and home and TV and sleep, any of those to me would feel incredibly limiting. And so I prefer to have the rich spectrum of all of these things work together in some more harmonious, fun way. Again, remembering that the goal here for me, at least, is happiness. I want to be happier and people around me to be happier and this world to be a better place. So I have some sort of underlying sense of compassion that helps me organize, you know, and kindness and, and survival, obviously, that help me organize these principles and use each of them in some more reasonable, hopefully mature way. And I continue to explore how that process works. And I don't be, claim to have every single answer about that. But the general notion that each, all of those perspectives should work in harmony and all of them should be honored as valid parts of you know, possible human experience, uh, that I find very helpful for myself anyway, and hopefully you will too. Yeah, it's interesting listening to you and uh, hearing what you have to say. I'm familiar with some of your ideas from previous podcasts you've done, but also conversations we've had. And it's interesting because um, one of the things I'm interested in doing is trying to look at things from different perspectives and not get into these sort of lazy dichotomies as I was hinting at before. And I think, you know, this this idea of the relational within practices is fundamental. And what I'm hearing in what you say is you use the word maturation as well, and I'm hearing that too. That's one of the sort of saving principles in a way for navigating this terrain in an explorative way that resonates with one's own interests, inclinations, and passion without getting too caught up in the uh, the excesses of one position or another. So, uh, you know, I, I, it's good to hear that from you. And I think I think some of our listeners might be surprised to hear that you've actually given so much thought to some of the more philosophical issues on this topic, and you've taken quite a strong stance. And I can hear some of those voices resonating around me. And some of them would like to criticize this, others would appreciate that. And that's all interesting too. But I think I think when it fundamentally comes down to it, the the question really is is what interests you most, what attracts you, and what 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 inspires you enough to invest time and energy in something like this in a way that's meaningful to you and to those around you. And it's interesting that I don't want my fellow intellectuals who 
do have a history of practice to leave aside their practice because their attraction to thought is so strong. I think that's a sad loss. And sometimes I think what I'd like to be able to do is recalibrate some of the ways we talk about sensei experience, passion, um, the heart, uh, the possibilities of the mind coming to terms with its own suffering, uh, the possibility that thought can actually be experienced quite radically differently without losing your intellectual faculties. And I know that many folks that I've had personal dealings with have gone very, very deep into what we would call the, the phenomenology of it, have maybe not found what they were looking for, but found more of their passion awakened by the conceptual, by the theoretical, which is fine. And I think it's fine for them in the way that, you know, the, the interest in magic for you is absolutely fine. And yet I, I'm aware sometimes that the limits of what is allowed to be possible is often constructed in this way by the fact that not enough of, not enough of us are, think, are thinking differently or creatively about, you know, how can we talk about these things in different kinds of vernacular? So, that, you know, those people who hate the word spiritual don't get cut out of the conversation, you know? Sure. Or, you know, those people who love magic are not cut out of the conversation with more intellectually leaning themes, which might benefit them. And so I'm looking at this from a, a meta perspective in which the project I'd like to see is a more interesting, more nuanced, richer relational connection between all of the aspects of a human, which I think all lend themselves both to theoretical uh, exploration and practical or, and experiential exploration. And I'd like to see more of those resources kind of coming together, informing each other, challenging each other too, but you know, creatively informing each other in a way that might actually give rise to new kinds of explorations and new kinds of possibilities. And I'm aware that a lot of people are are stuck in that kind of regard. So unless a person has a very strong connection to practice in the way you or I might do, and then a strong passion to explore this kind of ignored terrain, which for you in part today has come out as being these these concentration states, these magical possibilities. And for me, it's, it's something else. Um, and I think that's, that's probably what I'd like to happen in this practice series is get more people on board with saying, okay, you've got your concerns, bring them to the table, but let's talk about them more openly and more creatively and see what's possible. Because it might be interesting for you to go and do some magic, or it might be interesting for you, sir, to go and do some sexual practices. Oh, that's taboo. Or for you, madam, you know, maybe you need to do a bit more service work. And you, sir, maybe you need to go and read up on philosophy. Who knows? And then how would you even make those decisions? So how would you make the decision, you need to do this or you need to do that? While I can, of course, make my suggestions or someone else could make their suggestions, I don't know how we would even know that because it is sometimes that we find something amazing by going unbelievably far into something. So it was by me going very, very far into intellectual stuff, into philosophy, into thought, that you start to find the limits of thought. You start to find the fact that you can slice anything to a paradox. You can rationalize anything. You can deconstruct anything. You can construct anything. You can just purely within the un, the mind unconstrained by experience or anything else can do near, come up with nearly anything Wonderful as we things. well know. Wonderful and terrible things. And so, but I found that actually by going very, very far into that. So deeply into mathematics and into logic and into philosophy and into quantum mechanics and into that kind of stuff. And so that's how I found the edge 
And so you don't always know that someone maybe should round out with something before they've explored something to some unusually weird depth. As William Blake said, the road of excess leads to the palace of wisdom, I think. And uh, um, uh, you don't know what's enough until you know what's more than enough. Well, sometimes if people have not recognized the limits of whatever it is they're pursuing, maybe they haven't pursued it enough. Maybe they haven't gone far enough. And so it's very hard for me to know specifically for any one person what the, I don't know what the future holds. And I don't know the optimal path for anybody. I'm quite certain I don't know that. I don't necessarily know the optimal path for myself from a conventional point of view. Mm -hmm. It just seems to be what's happening. And so while if people say, I want to do this or I want to do that, I could give some advice about things that might make those things more likely if I have some sense of who they are and what they're like. But without that goal or passion or power coming from them, what are the chances they're going to do that other thing well? Or well enough to really understand what it is and, and what it isn't, what it gets you and what it doesn't get you. Yeah, and that's that's a, a really important point you've made. And, and I think that's why, you know, I kept um, reiterating what, what comes clear in what it is that drives you, which is that it's a passion. And I think you can't underestimate that. And it's, it's difficult, as you were rightly saying, who has what passion, where does it come from, and, and how does a person choose or allow that that desire to drive the direction they take here, there, and everywhere. I think that's one of the the, the the kind of sometimes utopian but ultimately positive ideals that comes out from this kind of the shift of power and the understanding of power from Generation X onwards, which is experimentation with perhaps more more peer-like group dynamics like the one you were talking about with the retreat. And certainly one of the tricky points there is that is there enough maturity for people people to be able to recognize competence and ask about it and listen to it for that group dynamic to actually lift up or raise the competence of the whole group as a whole or to empower each member of that group to head in a given direction. But these uh, formulations of, of different kinds of practitioners, they kind of happen and they don't. There is a certain magical quality to that too sometimes, right? Yes. You know, and... Uh, and that's the way it is. But I think as well that, just to say one more conciliatory point towards intellectualism, I appreciate what you're saying about it, and I think there is some truth to that, but I also think there is also a sort of stereotype in the sense of the intellectual life there at the same time. There's both. And you're certainly right that it can go that way, which is abstraction, abstraction, separation. And I've always had this experience, I don't know what you think about this, I've always had a, a sort of intuitive disregard for intellectuals who are disassociated from their bodies. I've always felt that was a bad sign. (laughs) So I felt like, you know, intellectual discussion, I can go as theoretical as you like, I'm happy to, but is the person in their flesh and blood in front of me, you know? Are they actually capable of dealing with some physical intimacy, for example? Or are they so isolated from the world that their thought might be brilliant, but how connected is it to this, this visceral, you know, sensuous earth that we're part of? And maybe that's something that somebody would criticize, but I don't mind that too much. The intellect as a tool for exploration, contemplation, and reflection is one of the other disregarded areas of practice in a lot of Western Buddhism. And I'll say one other thing about this, and I don't know if you engage in any of this kind of practice. My background has been primarily with Tibetan Buddhism, and there's uh, various rich forms of contemplation practice in Tibetan Buddhism. There's the mantra stuff as well, but there's also, you know, taking an idea 
which you then reflect and contemplate on and then would go into a state of meditation or contemplative reflection in. And, you know, the, the obvious ones are death, impermanence, compassion, etc., etc. We all know about this stuff. But what, one other practice that I've been experimenting with over the last 10 years is taking some of these philosophical ideas from various stages in the Western Buddhist, in the Western intellectual tradition and simplifying some of them and taking them as exactly the same thing as a meditation object. And that's been very, very interesting. Nice. Very interesting. And there it's, you know, it's a highly intellectually informed concept. And even nihilism is an interesting one to play with, but certainly not the main one I was interested in. The, the impact that those kind of phrases can have on a person are so powerful. And nihilism is a wonderful one. There's no meaning anywhere to anything. You know, sit with that, meditate with that for a day. It's actually rather interesting. Now, I would just suggest that if somebody's got a strong background in practice, that's probably going to be more fruitful than somebody who's starting out at the beginning. It might fuck them up, right? Sure. And, you know, some would argue, including David Chapman and maybe others, that actually, you know, diving into nihilism when you're unprepared is incredibly destructive. Yes. You know, and destabilizing. I think there's a lot to be said for that. But for somebody who's very, very solid in their sense of practice, and maybe is straying too far over into the idea that they are not just phenomenology, phenomenologically experiencing the reality of their sensei experience, but actually the entire universe, it might be useful for that person to actually try out a bit of nihilism for a while. It could help balance them out. A therapeutic dose of nihilism. It could be, yeah, it could work. Yeah. Okay. Sure. What have been some of your favorite concepts to explore? What are the terms, the Buddhist terms in particular, that you have found that that practice has been, uh, sorry, have made for the richest style of that sort of practice? Yeah. Well, in terms of um, like the basics of Buddhism, they're all good. (laughs) We take the basic three that you're familiar with, you know, emptiness or the lack of form or however we want to formulate it. There are so many of them, but I don't want to go down that road necessarily. Impermanence uh, and death. I mean, these, these are the good ones. Death is probably the most fruitful in terms of challenging attachment, you know. Memento mori. Remember death. Right. Yeah. But then again, um, bringing that into relationship with, let's say, contemporary thought. One of the things I like to propose or I used on myself and I talk about with other practitioners as well is, you know, what you don't want is you don't want Buddhist thought to be a truism or a cliche, right? It has to be have something that can actually impact you. So often uh, this, is a, this is a concept which is quite useful, I think, that comes to us uh, from various places. But one of them is the idea that what's the difference between passive performance? So in, in the sense that you're parroting something, so if you take a concept like, you know, I will die, right? You can meditate on that phrase as an object. To what point is that the performance or the parroting of the phrase as an abstract concept? How do you go from that to actually being something which starts to impact you, right? Emotionally, psychologically, physically. Sure. And one of the simple ways of doing that is just finding your own words for it, right? How do you formulate, I'm going to die in a way that actually hits you? Because for some people, it's like, oh yeah, it's a matter of fact, right? I don't care. So what? But there's, there can often be a way of rephrasing that in a way, you know, which triggers them into a more profound, more disruptive experience. Yeah, absolutely. Or the traditional practices I like, you know, watching corpses rot or what we did in medical school, 190 hours of taking a course, corpse, excuse me, and dissecting it down to fragments. I was going to say, you've got a lot of advantages in that. Yeah, <laughs> that or, you know, or getting to see people die or raise the yeah. dead or... All of those things and yeah. see people scream in agony as they die. Uh, oh, yeah. you know, those kinds of drown in their own blood or whatever. Um, 
remarkable uh, yeah. experiences in terms of driving some of this home, though I think all of us maintain some sort of weird functional skepticism about our own death somehow, <laughs> a lot of us anyway. Um, although uh, actually some of the most interesting people I've gotten to speak with in the medical world were people who had had near-death experiences where they had sort of died and been shocked back or whatever. These are very interesting. Very uh, curious. Very interesting people, mm. a lot of them. How do you make any of these reflections something real? Metaphrase, this is another classic example. A lot of people have a hard time, you know, may all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful. They say these phrases, but they feel nothing. Yeah, it can be very abstract. Absolutely, it can be incredibly abstract. And so how to bring those things down to the body to feel them in the heart. It's weird, the lessons we get given. I think a lot of those practices, at least for me in my own life, sometimes I would feel something when I would do those. And actually I got, you know, I've developed some talent for meta to be able to really feel it as a heartfelt thing through a lot of hours of practice. But initially it was frustrating and challenging and I didn't feel much. But I think there's sort of a weird element where we don't always know how those things will suddenly be taught to us. Like, most of the things I've learned about death were, did not happen while I was doing my Buddhist comp contemplation on death. They happened from other life experiences, most of which I would have preferred not to have had. Mm -hmm. uh, this is actually some of the same ones with Metta as well. Some of the things that have really broken my heart open, uh, you know, often some way that had some element of something painful or almost violating sometimes, uh, stuff, many of which I would not have ordinarily ordered for myself if I had a menu of spiritual experiences and oh, I can choose this today or the t you know the whatever no I wouldn't have chosen that one on the menu and yet they were very valuable and powerful and so I think it's interesting to do these practices but uh, in at least in my own practice I found that most of the experiences that really conveyed to me the understandings that a lot of those intellectual practices were designed to produce were not those practices at all. Not that they don't have their value, but it was usually something else much more hard-hitting. You, you actually touch on another point, which we might just finish with, which is, you know, the, the challenge of, of possibilities and opportunities and to what degree we self-direct ourselves towards them. You know, I haven't had your experiences, but I would second the fact that the unexpected or the uninvited are often the most powerful of transformative experiences that we can have. Yeah. And it's just interesting how contexts are created in which we have the opportunity to to live and to practice and to be not forced necessarily, but obliged by life in a sense to to experience one thing or another. It's interesting, you know. It's, it's all it's all very very interesting, and <laughs> part of it may just simply come down to the fact that we make choices. We have a passion. If we're lucky enough, we have the resources and the time to head in that direction and explore and see what happens. But uh, in, in terms of a lifelong practice, it's important to know how to welcome the unexpected and the undesired as well. Yeah, I mean that's most of where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, is in the actual grid of life. Yeah, you know, in this fathom long body and the strange things that happen to it as it crashes along towards our inevitable death. Yeah. Well, that sounds nihilistic. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm just so kidding. So I actually don't think that's nihilistic at all. Actually, so yeah, I actually think that's the reverse of nihilism. Uh, that provides a tremendous amount of uh, visceral meaning. Right? It so, can do for some. For, for me, at least, definitely. Uh, so, 
working in an emergency department, you get to see a lot of bad things, right? So I know bad things are in store for me. That mm. is a guarantee. Something really friggin' bad is going to happen to me and to you. That's that's true. Um, that, at least for me, that remembering death uh, reminds me to enjoy the heck out of this moment. I find it a source of astounding gratitude literally every single day that I wake up with my limbs and brain functioning to the degree that they do, I am actually very grateful. Every meal I sit down to and eat, I'm very grateful. A gratitude has actually been one of the most incredibly useful things I've learned to cultivate along the path mm. in my medical practice, in life in general. Um, and so I think that often gets forgotten Right. Because like the, the exquisite lunch you all provided in this fine conversation and the fact that we're sitting here in a place that's not at war at the moment. Mm. And, you know, but there was a war raging across the border not too long ago and there was an earthquake here and there you know, are these storms and there are these things. Luckily, at the moment, that's not happening. I'm really grateful for that. Uh, and so. I've, you know, the fact that we've been given these opportunities, I, I, I think even stoicism sort of as a, I, the Stoics are interesting. It could always get worse. Well, that actually taken to a profound degree can create immense gratitude. And so um, even the ability to say that maybe these things have no meaning, maybe they're all irrelevant, maybe it's all just twitching meat and stupid vanity. Uh, there's a weird freedom in that kind of thing too. And people are not drawn to nihilism for no reason, right? So they're drawn to it from an experience, empirical, pragmatism, something, it provides some value for them. It helps them in some way or their mind wouldn't be doing it. There's some value for them in it, weirdly enough. And so even nihilism contains the bizarre seeds of its own destruction. Anybody who's really getting into nihilism, well, it's doing something for you, right? It's it's tweaking some switch. It's giving you some maybe honesty or some, you know, vent for frustration or anger or despair or allow, allowing you to validly feel something that somehow you were told you shouldn't feel or to, you know, to do something. There is value in it. And to be grateful for that, if you're in a really nihilistic place and it's working for you, be grateful for that. Yeah. Right? That's nice, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and so... Well, one, way, one way of thinking about gratitude in the way you're describing it, because I agree with uh, what you said, and I think gratitude, I don't know how appreciated it is or not, but it's certainly, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just to make a pun. That was yeah. great. <laughs> I think gratitude, in a sense is one of those things that comes about, is produced by life. I mean, you can you can play it. I'm going to be grateful and I'm going to practice gratitude. But if you've had enough hard life experiences and you're still going, yeah. as you were saying, at some point as you mature, you realize shit. Yes. Wow. You gain perspective, mm -hmm. let's put it that way. And I think it's a, it's a nice antidote to many things. So I like the fact that you've just suggested that if you are a nihilist, you should be grateful for your nihilism. Absolutely. And I think that's a very cunning uh, thought, although not deliberately so necessarily. <laughs> but it's a very good practice in itself, right? Yes. You can practice that way and see what happens. I agree with you. One of the ways I tend to frame any dialogue, uh, dialogue and dialectical split between ideas and positions, the first question that comes to my mind is, okay, that's all fine. What's the payoff, you know? Yeah. Because that's what I want to know. If I know the payoff for you or if you know it, Sure. Then you and I can have a more interesting discussion. Yes. If you're going to argue at me from a position which you've adopted in which you won't play your, your hand or show your cards, it's kind of boring. 
you know, and I'm happy to play with you, but just what's the payoff? Mm-hmm. Where's the human in there? Because the human gets the payoff, right? The other thing as well with something like nihilism or any other kind of ideological capture is that there's there's always a denial of its opposite. In order to really grab at something, you have to deny a lot. So if you're really going to believe in nihilism, like really take it seriously, you really have to push all the meaning that keeps presenting itself around you, push it away. You have to ignore it. Totally true. Because it won't fit. And if you're obsessed with God or a singular meaning frame, you've kind of got to push away the fact that actually that's not present in most other places at the same time. And to me, what's interesting is that, that game, the the person that's struggling and and trying to keep these things at bay. I'm like, wow, show me how you're doing that. That's really interesting. Then we can talk about it, you know? Right. Uh, It's a great point. Absolutely. Right. And because a lot of the sort of cruel, horrible things that happen in this life seem to have no rhyme, reason, or meaning. They just seem causally cruel, Mm. right? If you want to attribute cruelty to impersonal causality. And yet it's hard for us not to, right? We take things personally, right? That's where people, and so of course that's what we do. (laughs) And so, uh, yeah, to that sense of meaningless cruelty, right? Because there there is almost always some like, resentment that reality didn't provide you with meaning right or there's a there's an anger against your parent reality that didn't provide you with meaning Mm. you know i think it's a valid thing to feel like okay feel that sure right i I think the resentment in particular is a very interesting one yeah 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 and be grateful to it yeah right (laughs) it's life Sure, and you know? maybe something interesting to explore. Yeah, Where yeah. is that coming from and what's yeah. it doing for you? I agree. Yeah, and I think that's a nice point for us to round off this first part of the conversation, and it actually links back to something we I spoke about with Hokai and Ken, You know, which was this metaphor that I think Hokai came up with in the end. I don't know where he got it from, but this idea of not turning your back on, on what life presents you with, which is maybe part of the sort of the mythology or the story of mysticism. But in the way we understood mysticism in those conversations was that life is unexpected and we don't know what's coming and it presents itself in ways that are greater than us. And as a practice or as an ideal of practice, that's a pretty good one. Don't turn your back on whatever comes, which is perhaps just another way of saying be grateful or engage with gratitude at what takes place within you and without. Sure. I would just qualify that with my ER doctor training where I've gotten to see how people actually react to bad things. And the stages of grief in the sort of classic Elizabeth Kubler-Rossian sense are valuable. We go into denial sometimes because we need to. Right. right? Right. You're talking about real trauma here. Right. Because, again, that that sort of, you know, be open to life only really seems to be relevant or apply. I mean, like, be open to the tablecloth. Good stuff. Right, to the good (laughs) stuff or the, the, you know, neutral stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. And then the sort of bad stuff. But it's the really bad stuff where you have to be kind of careful with that ideal. Yeah. Right? Because what's actually going to happen as a human animal Mm -hmm. is... Grief stages, right? That's that's what people do. I mean, this is this is to give people bad news, right? And to um, be able to witness how they handle that and watch all the range of you know. You walk into a room of ten people and tell them that a loved one has just died, and there was nothing the paramedics or us or anybody could do about that. And watch some people will just sort of get very quiet, and some people will start screaming. 
and some people suddenly get this horrible snarling look on the face and get on the phone and start calling a lawyer. <laughs> some, pe- you know, and you get, and some people are like, wait, couldn't they have, what? but when, why didn't you, did you really do, you know, the bargaining. And so anger, bargaining, denial, grief, acceptance, you know, and some people are like, okay, that's it, that's it. We got to make some funeral arrangements and they seem very functional. And they're going to go through all those stages back and forth, up and down, and sometimes random orders. You don't, they don't know how it's going to hit and none of us do. And so just, I would be careful with the ideal of just purely being open in an unfiltered way to life that didn't allow your human organism to process trauma the way a human organism does and go through those stages because there is value in sometimes a little bit of defense against the pain until we can kind of open to it and handle it in whatever doses we're capable of processing reasonably. So that would be the only thing I would add to that ideal as a sort of more human touch. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a good point to mention. Um, in, in these conversations, we, we we end up to some degree speaking about ideals. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think another way of thinking about it is just denial. What's the role of denial? You know, you can deny death, of course, and they pair up these concepts in the shamanic path that I've been part of. And one of them um, in relating to this kind of topic would be space and distance. What's the proper distance between what you can handle in a given moment and what's actually throwing at you? And the key is not to just shut down the whole thing, right? Because you can't cope but maybe you need more distance. Maybe you need more space to digest. And then you would go forwards in relating to that thing in the way that you do. But I think it's also the difference perhaps between thinking about the kind of conversation we're having today and many of these ideas taken on as practices that you actively engage in, you know, as a choice. Sure. And I think human choice fundamentally has to be at play, right? Sort of. Although... I don't think we really get to choose all the emotions that roll through us. Oh, and I oh, don't no, no, think no, we really get yeah. to choose when denial might just slam on full force because yeah. some part of our brain that our intellect may not have a lot of access to mm. thinks that's a good idea at that time. Or suddenly we might find ourselves in bargaining or anger. I don't think we actually really get to have as much choice in some of the way grief and acceptance move through us and how we get to those things, assuming we do. I mean, those are also interesting ideals that mm-hmm. acceptance is sort of a an ideal we have to be careful with, right? That, mm-hmm. of course, we're going to eventually perfectly accept every trauma that happened to us in some perfectly equanimous, balanced, well-integrated, are free from it kind of way. I actually am not sure that's true mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for any of the big stuff, actually. Yeah. And so... Uh, I would just, again, that's another ideal I would be careful with as a practitioner, because again, as an ER doctor, I've gotten to see where the rubber meets the road on this stuff. And that, I think, is a good place for us to wrap up the first half of this conversation, which inevitably and unsurprisingly went on longer than planned.
Just free machine. 